We are currently taking a break from our studies through the book of Genesis. The elders have asked me to give some instruction concerning the issue of leading in public prayer. And as we gave an introductory study to this in a recent adult class, uh, which took place uh, just a few Sundays ago, um, we're going to be picking up from where we left off uh, in that class. And the outline that's been passed out, distributed with the bulletin, it covers both what we covered in that lesson and also what we're going to be doing in this hour. This is going to be, in many ways, more of a lecture, more of an adult class-like type of uh, session rather than a regular sermon. And this has to do with how we lead in prayer, and there are differences in the way we pray privately from publicly, and we're going to be looking at some of those differences and uh, how especially we need to take care of our thoughts concerning others that we represent as we pray. But there are also very, a lot of similarities between our closet and our, our public prayers. And as we learn how to pray publicly with one another, this applies not only to the men that lead in worship and also to those that uh, will lead in prayer meeting uh, Wednesday by Wednesday, but also even in your smaller groups, you ladies, as you pray together, you lead in prayer. And so there are many applications, and even wives can be a help unto husbands as they would seek to lead others in prayer. And in all of this, of course, as we speak about prayer, we all feel our deficiencies. I think there's probably no subject that you can get people convicted over more quickly than to start talking about their prayer life. And when people ask what they can pray for for me as a pastor, often one of the first things that comes to my mind is that you would pray for me that I would be a man of prayer, that I would increase in my ability to speak with God. And as we have approached this subject, we began in our introductory study by giving some general perspectives about the approach to the subject, and those perspectives are listed at the top of your sheets, and I'm not going to go over them in the interest of time, but I want to draw your attention to what we covered under part two in this outline, and these parts are very unevenly divided, but we are now giving some general guidelines for the cultivation of our ability to lead in public prayer, and the first set of guidelines pertain to the fundamental direction of our prayer. And in one sense, you're to think of no person but God when you lead in prayer. In another sense, you need to be aware of others, that you're praying representing others. You don't just pray I this and I that. We, we, we pray we, for instance. There are things that we keep in mind. We pray loud enough that other people can hear. So those, those dynamics that are at work. But there are also issues that, that hinder us sometimes because we forget this fundamental direction that we think of, that we are praying first and foremost to God. And this is something that's emphasized, and we're going to reemphasize this as we come to the Lord's Prayer. And with respect to the fundamental direction of our prayers, we began to take up in our last study some negative implications of this basic principle of the fundamental direction of our prayer, and uh, perhaps maybe before we even begin, I could just ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll read once again verses 5 and 6. 
in a little while we're going to be looking at some other instruction in this very Sermon on the Mount on, the, on prayer. But uh, Jesus gives negative instruction at first with respect to prayer. He says we're not to be like the hypocrites, the Pharisees, when we, when we give, but then also when we pray. And so he says in Matthew 6 and verse 5, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, obviously, we're not giving instruction here about secret prayer, but Jesus is emphasizing that he's speaking to the motive of the heart. And he's emphasizing in this place that some people, they like to have other people listen to them pray. And they're really not praying to God, though. They're really praying in order that they might give a speech that will impress other people that listen to them pray. And so their thoughts, their heart, is not really fundamentally directed towards God. And this is a way of contrast what we are to avoid. And so as we give some negative implications, we're going to warn against what we ought not to be doing here in this hour, but then also want to get to some positive implications of what this means. And we saw in our first study that this will mean that we will avoid preaching and exhorting in our prayers. Prayer is not a time to start talking about somebody that you hope gets a point in the sermon or some other person that you want to hear something about and you want to give it, maybe, you're, maybe you, your pet doctrine has not been preached lately, you want to get it out. It's not a time for you to do teaching to the church or preaching to the church. This is not the place because prayer is directed towards God, it's not directed towards the people. And then we also not only emphasize that preaching and exhorting is something that we should not be doing, but also even conscious teaching is not a time for us to go into prayer by giving a theological lectures. Uh, some people have even quoted theologians and things like that in the midst of their prayers in order that they might teach others. And this is something that's not very, it is not uh, something that we ought to be doing in our prayers. Now, oftentimes, unconsciously, we will be teaching. People will be learning from our example. We learn from one another as we pray. But we're talking about conscious teaching where we consciously put things in our prayers in order that we hope that somebody else might get the point and learn from it. But I want to come now to some other uh, negative implications, some other common faults that need to be avoided if we are to uh, keep this principle in mind. And the, the, the third thing that's in your list there and your sheets there is the issue of self-display. And this, I want to emphasize that all studied refinement of language and all affectation of the beauties of rhetoric are out of place in public prayer. All of this is artificial, it's elaborate, it's, it's ornate, and people admire it. They call it eloquent prayer, but fervent utterances before God are always simple. They're not those that will be made to impress other people. And uh, this is because they're aimed at the Lord's ears. They're not aimed at the ears of men. And 
I want to quote here from C.H. Spurgeon in one of his lectures, and he presses this point home. I'm going to be doing a lot more quoting in this hour than I do in a regular sermon, but I think that some of these men that have studied this out over the history have a lot to teach us, and I want to pass on some of what they have written down and what they have said. And uh, the great Prince of Preachers, Spurgeon, urgently pressed this home to his students. He said, let the Lord alone be the object of your prayers. Beware of having an eye to the auditors. Beware of becoming rhetorical to please the listeners. It is a little short of blasphemy to make devotion an occasion for display. And then listen to this. Fine prayers are generally very wicked prayers. In the presence of the Lord of hosts, it is ill becomes the sinner to parade the feathers and finery of tawdry speech with the view of winning popular applause from his fellow mortals. Hypocrites who dare to do this have their reward, but it is one to be dreaded. A heavy sentence of condemnation was passed upon a minister when it was flatteringly said that his prayer was the most eloquent ever offered to a Boston congregation. We may aim at exciting the yearnings and aspirations of those who hear us in prayer, but every word and thought must be Godward and only so far touching upon the people as may be useful to bring them and their wants before the Lord. Remember the people in your prayers but do not mold your supplications to win their esteem. Look up, look up with both eyes. Well, may God spare us from having fine prayers that are made to impress other people that are listening, because these are made to people. And they're like that prayer of that Pharisee, and he thought he was praying so wonderfully talking about all the wonderful things that he had done in contrast to the tax collector that was there. And yet it says there that he prayed with himself. He wasn't really praying to God. And so it is when we do, we, when we try to put in all kinds of fancy things and things that are impressive in our prayers, uh, this is to pray to men and not to pray to God. And so self-display is out of place in public prayer. But then... In the fourth place, indecent familiarity with God is also out of place. Now, sometimes this is expressed by an unhallowed and a sickening abundance of endearing words like sweet Lord Jesus and phrases like that that will be uh, put in, into prayers. And this is one of the ways in which this, uh, you know, like people try to pretend like they're already the, the, the sweet ones that are really with Jesus and they're really on special terms with him and so forth. But this is probably not the most common expression of this kind of indecent familiarity. Another form of this irreverent familiarity, which is perhaps more common, is the practice of talking to the Lord as if he was just our buddy. And in a sense, there is a truth that prayer is talking to the Lord. We speak with him in not fine language, but ordinary language as we would talk. And yet we're not talking to our buddy. There is a difference here. We're talking to the Lord of hosts. And there are some people that treat God as though he was just a nice dude that was able to help us out whenever we need him. And we just talk about it a little bit and, and uh, we, we pray that way. And often this attitude, it comes through with the very tone that you use. 
uh, completely absent from such prayers is any sense that God is the transcendent, holy God that he is. Even in the 1800s, John Newton, he was constrained to address this problem when he said in an essay on this subject, he was talking about the issue of talking to the Lord. Still more offensive, he says, is a custom that some have of talking to the Lord in prayer. It is their natural voice, indeed, but it is that expression of it that they use upon the most familiar and trivial occasions. The human voice is capable of so many inflections and variations that it can adapt itself to the different sensations of our mind as joy, sorrow, fear, desire, etc. The voice can convey all those different emotions. And if a man was pleading for his life or expressing his thanks to the king for a pardon, common sense and decency would teach him a suitableness of manner. And anyone who could not understand his language might know by the sound of his words he was not just telling, making a bargain or telling a story. Not standing before the king to, to dicker with him. He's not just telling a little joke. There's something he's begging for his life. You see, there's a difference, you see, in this situation. How much more, when we speak to the king of kings, should the consideration of his glory and our own vileness and of the important concerns that we are engaged in before him impress us with an air of seriousness and reverence and prevent us from speaking to him as if he was altogether such as one as ourselves. The liberty to which we are called by the gospel does not at all encourage such pertness and familiarity as would be unbecoming to use toward a fellow swarm who was a little advanced above us in worldly dignity. So we should talk with God in a way that expresses that he is God, we are people, we are his creatures. And uh, we're not just his buddies, he's not just our buddy, just, we just have a little talk and, and, and so forth. But there, is, there should be a difference in the way in which we express, especially in public, our prayers unto the Lord our God. And then a, another thing that needs to be avoided if we consider the fact that our, we are, prayers are Godward in their orientation, is what we call a peremptory demanding spirit. And it is, you know, peremptory, peremptory is somebody that just comes and says, comes to you and says, he just demands you. If you right off the bat, he tells you what to do. It's not somebody that asks you something, somebody politely and so forth. It's a demanding spirit we're talking about here. Now, it's one thing to hear a man wrestle with God it's one thing to enter into the spirit of Jacob who says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He perseveres in his prayers. He wrestles with God. But it's quite another thing to arrogate to ourselves a hectoring spirit, as if it's our place to order our heavenly servant around and to tell God what he has to do. Remember, you're on earth. God is in heaven. He is the infinite Yahweh, the eternal I am. Now, back in the 70s, and I, I won't mention any names here, but on our way to another destination years ago, this is before a lot of you were born, um, Juanita and I, we visited a famous church in Chicago. And this was back in the days when certain mega churches, one of the ways they would grow their churches 
is they would have these bus ministries and they would oftentimes feed hamburgers to the kids that would get on the bus and all kinds of things like that to entice a lot of, a lot of people to ride the buses to their church. And they hoped to get people, their children especially, to a bus to church in order that they might get them to, quote, make a decision for Christ. And there was a joke going around back in those days that this pastor, he got into a dispute with another famous pastor down in, down in Texas who also had a bus ministry, and their dispute was because their bus ministries were overlapping one another, and they were, they were reaching too many of the people that were in the same, with the same reach. And obviously it's a ridiculous illustration, but it shows that they would bus children from long distances to get to this church. And the, the pastor's sermon that morning, it was on prayer. And I'll never forget his main point, which he urged his listeners, as it were, to put God in a hammerlock and demand an answer to prayer. You tell God, and he has to do it. That was the, that was the basic message that came through the whole message. He cited all kinds of examples, of course, how he had done this and how God had obeyed him. And this was a manifestation, he, he thought, of faith. And to this day, there are many name-it-and-claim-it preachers on television that promote ordering God around as an expression of faith. And this is not the way in which we should approach the Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth. Um, and yet, although we give this modern illustration, this is not a new thing. Uh, this is something that people have done for generations. Uh, Samuel Miller, who was a faithful Presbyterian minister for 20 years and then became professor of ecclesiastical history and church government at Princeton Seminary, and this was in the early days when Princeton Seminary was evangelical. It was a, one of the great seminaries of our country in, this, in its early days. And in 1849, he published his thoughts on public prayer. And in this book on public prayer, Samuel Miller wrote this. There are those who, on the principle of indulging in filial confidence, filial confidence is you have confidence to, to ask your father something. You're the son, you ask the father but you do so with some confidence because you have a relationship. So people um, indulging this confidence and a strong faith address God as they would speak to an equal, claiming the fulfillment of his promises, insisting on the bestowment of what they wish, and in short, employing without scruple the language of earthly and carnal urgency. And this is not in, in accordance with that deep humility, that profound reverence, and solemn awe with which suppliants, conscious of unworthiness, ought ever to approach the infinite majesty of heaven and earth. So this issue of just demanding God do this or that, this issue of ordering God around and saying it's by faith, this is so contrary to his, his being God, his being a glorious Yahweh, and who we are, who are we? The filial but humble confidence of a dutiful child is one thing. Yes, we are children. We call him our heavenly father. That's one thing. The presumptuous familiarity of one who thinks much more of his own wishes and will than of his deep unworthiness as a sinner and of the infinite holiness and majesty of the being to whom his prayer is addressed is quite another. There is such a thing as appearing at home before the mercy seat and pleading with God with all the freedom and confidence of an affectionate child. And there's also a thing, as under the guise of prayer, of speaking unadvisedly with our lips, and forgetting that even the heavens are not clean in the sight of him who sits on the throne 
of grace. And so we need to remember when we pray, when we lead others in prayer, not to have this demanding spirit, but we come as suppliants. We come by faith, we come boldly making our requests, we plead God's promises, and yet we, we, we say all along, if thy will be done, we submit our will to him. If, if Christ, the very Son of God, prayed, if thy will be done, he didn't make a demand of, of God the Father in, in, in a hectoring way, we ought, to, we ought to behave in a similar way. But then, as we think of the Godward direction of public prayer, Another thing that needs to be avoided is what we have called affected humility. Now, in public prayer, it's important to go on and on about, it's, it, I shouldn't say it's important, it's, it's improper, I read my notes wrong here. It's improper in a public prayer to go on and on and on about what a great sinner you are. It's proper to confess corporately that we are sinners, that we need forgiveness, and we need God's grace, but we are representing them as their mouthpiece. We're not having our private devotions in public prayer. And if one of the people in the congregation was to lead in prayer, would he include a protracted speech about your greatness as a sinner? And so, especially you're thinking about a preacher that prays and he goes on and on and on about what a great sinner he is. What if you put that prayer in the mouth of somebody else? Is that the way they would pray? Take the case of a minister that prayed this way. This is actually the way he prayed. Lord, assist thy servant, one of the most weak and unworthy of men, a mere child in spiritual things, in attempting to open up and apply the scriptures. Help him in all his weakness and ignorance, rightly to divide the word of truth. Well, this would be appropriate in secret prayer but it's completely inappropriate as the mouthpiece of God's worshipers. As, as their mouthpiece, he is to voice what they would pray if they were praying and leading in prayer. And if one of them were to pray publicly for him when he's about to preach, how would he pray? Lord, assist Pastor Sarver, one of the most weak and unworthy of men, a mere child in spiritual things, in attempting to open up and apply the scriptures, help him in all of his weakness and ignorance, and go on and on about what a sinner he is. And is that the way they would pray? No. And so and preachers, they go overboard sometimes, and sometimes we can do this in other contexts where we, as it were, confess our private sins in public and confess our needs in a very artificial way. We're praying corporately as we pray as the, in public. And then another thing that needs to be avoided is an affected tone of voice. Sometimes by the tone in his voice, a man can seek to imitate those that change their tone in order to sound like they, they were praying with great fervency. They hear somebody praying in a certain tone, very earnest and very fervent way, and so they put this on, you see. They try to imitate that particular tone of voice. And this is false fire. We need not to bring such false fire before the Lord. Simulated ardor is shameful lying in the presence of God and his people. So beware of carnal efforts to crank up devotional fervor. Beware of trying to imitate 
people whose prayers are full of groans. Maybe they've got O's in their prayers, or they have a high pitch, and they, they kind of screech a little bit, or, or they have some kind of a different voice that they use that they don't have when they speak in other contexts. This affected tone of voice, and I don't know that this is common in our prayer meetings, but I just want to warn you against it, that we need to avoid an affected tone of voice. Some people, they put on an affected tone of reverence even, assuming a praying voice, essentially different from their speaking voice. They'll have a little tremor in their voice, you know, and it's just a little bit different. I've heard preachers, and you can turn on even some of these TV preachers, and as soon as they pray, they've got a little bit of different voice that they, they put on. And it's totally artificial. And certainly it's right for the person leading in prayer in a large audience to not forget that he's praying with other people there. You pray loud enough so people can hear you if you're praying in a, in a public room. And you pray in other ways that help them so that they can hear you clearly. But in th this can be done without adopting the kind of artificial tremor or artificial reverence that's adopted by certain charismatics or certain preachers in the, in the opposite sense in highly liturgical contexts. And so pretended reverence, let's remember, is also an abomination in the sight of the awesome God before whom we stand. But then, let me also caution you against flattery in prayer. When we are in our public prayers, when we seek to ingratiate ourselves to the preacher or to the deacon or to the church members, what are we doing? When we start praising them in our prayers, we're we're offering praise not to God, but to men. Again, I want to quote from that excellent work by Samuel Miller on public prayer. and He relates an incident of the life of Jonathan Edwards. And I think most of you are familiar with who Jonathan Edwards was. He's one of the greatest theologians that ever was in this country. Powerfully used of God in the Great Awakening in the middle of the 1700s. And he was one of the men that also founded Princeton University in, at the, towards the end of his life. A great scholar as well as a powerful preacher. And he relates an incident in the life of this Jonathan Edwards, and he says he had engaged to preach on a certain Sabbath for a neighboring pastor. And when the day arrived, the pastor went to his pulpit at the appointed time, but did not find Mr. Edwards there. He waited as long as he thought proper, Mr. Edwards was still not appearing, and he began the service. In the course of the prayer, which usually precedes the sermon, Mr. Edwards, who had been detained by an unexpected occurrence, entered the church. So you get the picture. This man is leading the worship service. He's praying, and, and Jonathan Edwards, he's creeping in quietly into the church. And being remarkably gentle and quiet in his movements, he came into the house, made his way to the pulpit, and placed himself by the side of the pastor without being observed. And the pastor in his prayer, taking for granted that Mr. Edwards was still absent, had allowed himself to express regret that he had failed to come and that the congregation was to be disappointed. And he also launched out in expressions of profound respect for the talents, the learning, and the piety of Mr. Edwards, thanking God that he had raised up so eminent an instrument for doing good and that he had been enabled to accomplish so much by his learned and enabled works and praying that his important life might be spared and his usefulness extended to the remotest parts of the land. So he's giving a whole speech in his prayer, praising Edwards, you see. 
At the close of his prayer, to his astonishment, he found Mr. Edwards standing by his side, ready to perform the service which had been expected of him. And with a little embarrassment, he said, Sir, I did not know that you were present. If I had known it, I should not have prayed as I did. But feeling that it might do some good to throw in the scale of of something else about his, uh, to balance out his compliments, he said, But after all, they do say that your wife has more piety than you. So, obviously this man, he just dug himself deeper in the hole by by, by adding that at the end. But it's an illustration of the the fact, and and I've I've seen this done in public places. It it could be done not only in prayers, but this whole business of reciting all their credentials and so on, of a a visiting speaker, it, 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 it verges on idolatry, I think. We need to be careful to avoid flattery in our prayers. And then another thing that needs to be avoided as we think about the Godward direction of our prayers is the recitation of personal details. Now there are personal experiences or issues that might be appropriate for private prayer and maybe some things that would be appropriate for a small circle of people that you know the best, but they're unsuitable for congregational prayer. And uh, maybe I could just since this is more of a class more than a sermon, I could just ask, can you think of the kinds of things in which it would be not appropriate to include uh, these personal matters in a public prayer? I should have given you a warning here. Yes, John. You get too detailed about the kinds of things that are in there, especially if there maybe were requests about your own family, maybe, or or you don't, maybe even some other things, yeah. But other, yeah, but other people, yes, yes, why? We've had, we've had letters that have come to us that way where we've had to edit the letter before we read it in our prayer meeting just because we feel like it just reveals too much. Um, and so um, we've even had occasion to do that you know, not too long ago. And so I, I think there needs to be care in that. Um, I think there can be a little more uh, a little more said maybe when you're talking, when you're writing across, you know, you're writing from the Philippines about the situation in the mission field, um, and you can say that somebody fell into sin, and maybe mention, without mentioning any names, that somebody fell into adultery, and, and we need to pray for the th- restoration or something like that. But going into all kinds of detail, especially if it was a church leader, um, this needs to be, we need to be careful about that. Well, I think these are, these are good uh, examples here. But uh, maybe I could just give a couple more examples about the kind of personal details. Uh, let's say you are praying uh, for homes in which Christ is honored. You want 
us to have good families and good uh, fathers and mothers and so on. And so you're, you're asked to be the one that leads in prayer about our personal families and uh, our growth in our church and our family life and as fathers and as mothers. And you're leading a prayer about that. And so you pray, Lord, you know how my two sons, Butcher and Bubba, always got in a fight and how I got mad at them when they were in a fight last week. And please forgive me for that. Well, you don't put that in your prayer. That's not appropriate for a public prayer. Or as you pray for forgiveness for sins that may have taken place even that day, we pray that way sometimes. Because we can be irritable on the way to church, you know. Uh, you know why do I always have to, you know, why are you always waiting on me? You know, all that stuff. We can irritate one another on the way to church because it's a tense time to get there on time and so forth. And as soon as you're praying for forgiveness that may have taken place even uh, for sins that day, you pray, oh, and Lord, you know how it gets under my skin that we're always late for church and how I got angry with my wife for not planning ahead. And please forgive me for getting irritated with her. Well, that's totally inappropriate for a, a, a public prayer. It exposes your wife for one thing in a very unfair way. Or maybe you're praying that God is going to provide for his people in these tough times. And so you say, Lord, you know what it's like to get an unexpected expense. Like the bill that I just got for my transmission work in my car, and I didn't have money to pay for it. And I asked your provision for me, and also pray for all the people that have unexpected expenses. Well, those are the kind of details are, are really not appropriate in uh, just to spring on people in a public prayer, in a prayer meeting, or in a worship service. Obviously, there are times when we pray for jobs. We pray for those kinds of things that are, are, do relate to our, God's provision. But we need to remember that when we're leading a public prayer, we're not having our private, we're not having our, our family devotions. We're addressing God on behalf of the whole congregation about the matters that pertain to his kingdom. Well, these are some examples of, of negative faults that we need to avoid some negative implications from the Godward direction of prayer as emphasized what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 6. But now I want to come to some positive implications and I want you to turn with me please first of all to the Gospel of Luke to Luke chapter 20. We understand that the fundamental direction of our prayers is Godward our prayers are going to be marked by several positive traits. And the first of these positive traits is the trait of reality. And here in Luke 20 and verse 45 and following, we see this principle. If our prayers are directed to God, they will be the opposite of that which the Lord talks about in Luke 20, verses 45 to 47. We read in those verses, then in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, his disciples, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now, what does he condemn especially about their prayers? They're hypocritical, and the particular hypocrisy in this case is that they want to sound very pious. 
And they want to make it look like they can be, they're the, they're the, they're the guys that get along and pray for three hours at a time, you know. And so in public, they, want, they pray these real long prayers so that everybody knows that they pray long times in private as well. It's, it's all hypocrisy, Jesus says. And we should test our prayers for their reality by asking this. Could this prayer have been put in the mouth of each one of God's people in that room? When we lead in prayer, we should pray as each member would pray for himself. Now it is true that there are certain factors that need to be kept in mind when we are representing others before God. For instance, when we pray in public, we change the word I to the word we. We don't say, Lord, forgive me of my sins, or we don't say, and I this or that. I pray this or that. We pray, we pray. That's the way we pray when we pray in public because we're not just speaking on our own behalf, not having our devotions. We're praying in behalf of God's people. The church is gathered in, in, in one place. And, and for this reason, when we're praying at a time when the church is gathered together, we should pray also loud enough that others can hear us. And we're going to get to some of those things that relate to how we need to be aware of these factors the fact that we are representing God's people. But apart from being loud enough and, and those kinds of things to reflect that we have not forgotten that we represent them, apart from these matters, we should pray as if the only ear that is listening to us is the ear of God. Our public prayers should be utterly without any attempt to impress the hearer's ears, the people that are listening. We should use language as simple as any believer would use in private prayer. Robert Dabney, the great Southern theologian, he asked this, How then does a soul properly speak for itself to its God? Does it dream of fine language? Does it think of artificial terms of expression? Does it deem that ornaments of style have any place? You well know that if you overheard that man in his secret prayer and found him employing such ambitious verbiage, you would conclude at once that he was insincere. So just as soon as the minister introduces any rhetorical advice or artifice, he betrays the fact that he is speaking to creatures and not to God. He's forgotten that he professes what he professes to be about, and he's mocking the searcher of hearts. The first requirement then is that the language of prayer must be wholly unambitious, unaffected, and simple. It must be not the, such as is proper from a teacher speaking to a congregation, but such as appropriate for an accepted sinner speaking to his God. Now imagine you're listening to a humble, penitent Christian fervently pouring out his heart before God. What would you expect to hear if you overheard a sinner, a converted sinner, he's praying in secret, how would he pray? You'd expect to hear him pouring out his desires in simple, unaffected terms, humble terms. You'd never expect to, to listen to that person praying in private with the glitter of rhetoric, a long spun out oration, anything close to preaching or teaching, anything calculated to win the approval of any ear but God's. 
Yet when we apply the same test to so much of what is offered by ministers in the pulpit, others that would lead in other contexts in public, even by lay people in the prayer meeting, how disappointed we are at the lack of simplicity, the lack of sincerity that we often find. Samuel Miller, he exclaims, how often, instead of the language of cordial desire, the tones of deep feeling, and the whole manner of importunate suppliance, filled with awe before the majesty of God and pleading for mercy with all the earnestness of broken and contrite hearts. Instead of this, he says, we're compelled to hear either on one hand effusions in which the invention of the leader is more prominent than his devotion, and sometimes in which the skill of the theologian, even the taste of the rhetorician, are more conspicuous than mourning for sin, the deep humility and affectionate confidence of the believer pleading for his life. Now, in striking contrast to what I've just described as what's to be avoided, how we need to be simple, we're praying to God, we're not impressing one another. In striking contrast to this is the conduct of the man that was known as the Prince of Preachers, the most eloquent preacher perhaps that England ever had, C.H. Spurgeon. And yet as the editor of his autobiography relates, and he related, I alluded to this in our first lesson on the subject, I didn't remember exactly where I'd read it, but I, I found it. And in his two-volume autobiography, the second volume, the editor of this autobiography, he relates this. Spurgeon himself often said that the pulpit was his throne and that when, when preaching, he envied no monarch in all the world nor felt the slightest desire to exchange places with any man upon the face of the earth. Yet there was even to him an inner shrine, the very holy of holies, which was more sacred still. Many times he has testified that when leading the great congregation in prayer, he has been so wrapped in adoration and so completely absorbed in the supplication or thanksgiving that he had been presenting, that he has quite forgotten all his surroundings and has even felt a measure of regret upon closing his petition and opening his eyes to find that he was still in the flesh, in the company of men of like passions with himself, instead of being in the immediate presence of the Most High, sharing in the higher worship of the holy angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. Well, this is a wonderful example of the positive trait I'm trying to emphasize here, the trait of reality. He forgot everybody else as he was praying, Spurgeon did. And he is caught up in the fact that he's speaking to God. It was a real expression of what was on his heart. And so as you lead us in prayer on Wednesday nights and as various ones lead on Sunday or you lead at smaller groups, it's exceedingly important that you remember that it's God's ear, not the ears of men that you're trying to reach. And this should be of great encouragement to, to those of you that are afraid to lead us in prayer. Worship services and prayer meetings, they're not stages on which we compete with one another to see who's most eloquent. That's not the purpose of it. And some of the prayers, I think, that are most edifying to God's people are the simplest prayers. Sometimes we hear a brother pray that has a hard time stringing sentences together. 
Somebody that's, that, that trembles even time to think about having to lead in prayer and gets nervous about it, doesn't know what to say, and, and, is, and is not a public speaker in the, in the slightest sense of the word, and yet simply puts requests before God, and we hear that person pray, and it's a delight to us. We know that what's been offered is a simple, sincere petition lifted up before God. As we gather together to pray, we're a family. And in ordinary families, the children don't compete to see who's going to be the most eloquent. You don't come before your father and say, now, and, and, and now thou, thou hast blessed us with this and that, and, and, uh, and thou art the most eloquent and the most wonderful and the most high and the most lofty, and, 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 uh, and, uh, and go through a whole history of everything you want. To, you, you, don't, you don't talk to your dad like that, your father like that. Yes, there's respect as you, as you put a petition in. But you're not, you're, not trying, you're not trying to impress with your eloquence. And in the same way, our Heavenly Father, he delights to hear simple prayers that are a genuine, out, genuine outpouring of our hearts. He's more pleased with a simple prayer that lacks eloquence, but is real, than he is with an ornate oration that lacks sincerity and reality. And so reality is the first characteristics that I want to emphasize but then as we continue to consider the positive implications of the fact that our prayers are to be Godward, we come to another trait, and it's the trait of reverence. And this is why we picked a hymn that we did before this, this uh, sermon, the hymn that expresses so wonderfully, Lo, God is here, and the wonderful, wonderful hymn that Turgestein wrote uh, years ago. Now turn with me, please, to First Chronicles chapter 29. We understand that the fundamental direction of our prayers is to be Godward. Our prayers are going to be marked by reverence. And again, those prayers that are set forth in Scripture as model prayers, they're filled with reverence. Here I want to read David's prayer at the time after which he had made a great collection to prepare for the building of the temple that his son would build. And instead of being proud of all the organization that he did and all the things that the people had done and patting everybody on their back. You know how they have these speeches and campaigns and so on. I want to thank so-and-so, I want to thank so-and-so. You have 15 minutes of boring speech with all the people that are mentioned. David doesn't do that. That's not what he does here on that occasion. He could have done that. But we read in First Chronicles 29 and verse 10, Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. And your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your great name. But who am I and who are my people that we are able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all of our fathers. All our days on earth, as were a shadow, 
and without hope. This prayer is full of majesty of God, full of expressions of reverence and adoration. This is a prayer of, of devotion to the Lord God that he worships and adores. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, we're exhorted to come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And because we have a great high priest who brings our petitions to God, we don't need to come cringing and cowering as if we were rebels that had been caught trying to overthrow the king and we got to plead our life unless we get hung on the gallows. We don't need to pray in the cringing way like that. We can come with a sense of boldness because we come in the name of Jesus and we come to a, a, somebody that is gracious. It's a throne of grace. But though we speak of a throne of grace, let's not forget that it's a throne. And on that throne is the king of the ages. On that throne is the ruler of the kings of the earth. On that throne is the judge before whom every man, woman, and child shall give an account someday. That's the one on that throne. Just as a courtier at the palace of an earthly king puts on a different mane, a different demeanor, another manner in which he exhibits to fellow servants, it should be that way with us. Dictatorial, presumptuous, and pompous language is utterly out of place in the majestic, in the, in the presence of the majestic reverence and the presence of God. Instead, there should be something in the tone of our voice, the words that we select, that express the awe that we feel when we stand in God's holy presence. We're speaking to the King of Kings. We're speaking to the Lord. We're speaking to the one before whom angels cover their faces as we pray. Let's not forget it. And it's right that we give attention, therefore, to this aspect of our prayers. But it will do us no good to try to mimic this kind of reverence. We need to be reverent from the heart. If, if there is reverence, it needs to be real reverence. These two points of reality and reverence, they have to go together. And if we, want, if we want our voice and our words to express humble reverence, and we want the way we come across to express a contrite spirit, if we want to express holy earnestness before the Lord of God and, and the, in his ears and in the hearing of others, we need to labor by the grace of God to really come to the state of mind. Re, we feel this in our hearts. We're not praying hypocritically. We feel what we utter. We feel our sinfulness. We feel God's greatness. It's reality to us, and therefore our reverence is real. And here, let me mention a habit that we should avoid that's contrary to the reality and the reverence that we've been stressing. What I have in mind here is a common mistake of repeating the Lord's name in every sentence of our prayers, and even sometimes more than once in each sentence. And I know that this is not intentional, but it, it's a practice that ends up using the Lord's name as a filler. And so sometimes in our nervousness as we pray, and as we speak in public, we, we use the word ah uh, or um. You know, it's kind of like filler words as we, as we continue to pray. And we need to be careful that we don't use the Lord's name that way that his name is stuck in there as filler all the way through. Many times again and again, 
Again and again, say, Lord, this, Lord, that, Lord Jesus, Lord, this, or dear Lord, dear Lord, this. And continually fill it, our prayers with, with that as, as a filler. We need to be careful. Now, when one of my brethren would do this, I assume, and I'm not judging anybody's heart in this matter, I assume that this is an expression of that brother's reverence. That's what's in his heart. I'm reluctant to condemn him in my heart in the least when, th when this happens. And at the same time, I would appeal for carefulness here. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And we must not forget the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, or use that name in an empty way. Reverence for his name should teach us not to use his name as an empty filler in our prayers. So be careful about that. So this is an aspect of showing reverence. And the reverence that we find in the prayers that are recorded in the Bible, they should also remind us to avoid the impertinent familiarity that we discussed earlier. Now it's true that God is our friend. Abraham was the friend of God. But it doesn't mean that he's to be treated like our buddy, as if he's our equal. He's the one to whom Paul prayed using these words. And this is a model for us. How does he pray? Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. 1 Timothy 1.17 This God to whom we pray, he's one whom Paul described as the blessed and only potentate the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. As Paul puts it in 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now in order to cultivate the reverence that we've been stressing here, let me recommend a practice to help you learn how to pray this way. And it's in your private devotions, pray back the prayers that you read when you come across. When Paul is praying, make that part of your prayer time after you read. And let that frame your prayers. And that's one of the reasons why, by the way, we, we like to have a call to worship before we pray in our worship service. Because we like our, our, our prayers to be framed by biblical language. And we pray back the very thing that God said to us. And we could do the same thing if we take a prayer that's in the Bible. We take one of David's prayers, one of his psalms, or one of the psalms of Asaph, or Daniel, or Paul, or others. Try to make that prayer your own prayer as you, as you have your devotions. Get used to doing that. And that'll help you learn how to pray in the way that would bespeak the reverence that is due unto the Lord as we seek the face of God. And then... I want to just wrap this whole point up here, and so I want to just at least mention it briefly. We might have to finish this up here in our next study. But there's a third trait that I want to mention before we close our time this afternoon. If we understand that the fundamental direction of our prayers is to be Godward, our prayers will also be marked by a, this trait, a God-centeredness to them. Our thoughts must rise higher than thoughts about ourselves and our own personal needs. They need to be higher than even the needs of other people in the room that we pray with. 
Our, our thoughts should be bigger than that. They need to rise to heaven. In Psalm 25, David begins by praying, Unto you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. What is he doing? At the very outset of his prayer, he's, he's reminding himself of the majesty of God. And he says, I would lift up my soul unto you. I would present my heart unto you and worship you, the Lord of heaven and earth. And our prayers should be God-centered in two ways. First of all, they need to be God-centered in their approach. When the Lord taught his disciples how to pray. He said, in this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10. Now, what's the thing that is there in that prayer? First of all, there is the, the address. It's not he, our Father in heaven. That's how he begins. He begins with the majesty and the glory of God. He doesn't begin, you see, with, 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 a, well, with, a, with all the gibbies, a, a list of personal temporal needs. He doesn't begin with give us this day our daily bread. Our prayers must not, must not begin with the me and the my. The prayer, it should begins, you see, as, as, as Jesus' prayer, as he taught us to pray. It begins with an address that features the tenderness of God. He's our Father. It begins with, also in the address, uh, the majesty and the glory of God. He's our Father in heaven. And then after addressing God in this way, where does he go? Immediately, that address is followed by a prayer in which God's name would be hallowed. And right away, it's that God's name would be hallowed in such a way that his kingdom would come upon earth and that his will would be done. And so our approach, the very way in which we begin our prayers, uh, there should be a God-centeredness to them, but especially also their content should be framed by this aspect of our prayers. The first petition of the Lord's Prayer is, Hallowed be your name. Expresses our ardent desire that God's glory would be magnified and known and honored. That's what God's name is. His name is who he is. And we want him to be honored and hallowed and highly lifted up in the minds of people in the earth. That's the first petition. And the next two petitions, they focus on the way God's name is hallowed. The two primary ways in which God spreads his glory throughout the earth, the two primary ways in which his name is magnified, is in the coming of the kingdom and in the doing of his will. And above everything else, our prayers and our worship services in our prayer meetings, they should focus on these matters. And this is why in our prayer meetings we begin with matters that pertain to the spread of God's kingdom. And you look at the prayer sheets, you can say, well, that looks really imbalanced. You have three-fourths of the page filled up with missionaries and other churches. That's biblical, my friends. That's the emphasis of Jesus teaching us in prayer. How we are to pray. We are to pray for the extension of his kingdom. That's the first and foremost thing that should be on our hearts and our minds as we gather together to pray, especially when we pray in public. And this is why we give more attention to these matters in our prayer meeting. Praying for the conversion of the unconverted, the work of missionaries, church planters, seminaries, and even our own evangelistic endeavors, and our efforts to reach the hearts of young people. Praying for the persecuted church, praying for the progress of the gospel in war-torn areas, 
These are the kinds of things that Sunday by Sunday, Wednesday by Wednesday, ought to fill our prayers first and foremost, aside from lifting up our petitions, expressions of praise and honor to the Lord our God. Well, this doesn't mean that we're not going to pray for the needs of other individuals. And uh, I'm going to say a few words about that, but I think I've already kind of overextended my time here. And so I think we'll stop at this point. But I trust that this has been of some help to you. This will be a means of strengthening us. And trust that as we think about these principles, that this sermon is not going to make us judges of one another. It's we're fellow strugglers. We're, as pastors, we're still trying to learn how to pray. And as people, we're, we, we, we want to learn to pray more and more biblically. And these are the goals that we should keep in mind. And I hope that, that, uh, that you take it in this way, not as a, not as a scolding of, of anything that's been done wrong and the like, but that this is the way in which God would direct us, as, we believe as pastors, the way we should pray in public as we gather together as his people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given to us instruction about how to approach you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to take these basic lessons that we have gleaned from various parts of the word of God this afternoon. And we pray that in all that we say and do as your people, that it would be with reverence, with reality, and that we would do so with with kingdom priorities in mind, that there would be this God-centeredness, that your name would be hallowed throughout the earth, that you would be honored, and that that your gospel would prevail in the hearts of sinners and that your will would more and more be done upon earth, even as it is in heaven. Teach us, Lord, more and more to frame our prayers in that way. Help us, Lord, for we are weak. We are by nature sinners. We are by very nature selfish in nature. We are very much by nature preoccupied with our own little petty issues. And we know, O Lord, that you are concerned about all those matters that concern us, we bring those as wish, as before you as well. And yet, O oh Lord, we do pray that you would help us to put you first and your kingdom first in what we do and what we pray for as we pray as your people in this place. We pray in Christ's name.